was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to present part one of my conversation with the legendary John Rubenstein. Part two will be coming sometime in the future, but in the meantime, I encourage you to run and buy your tickets to see John, along with Tony Roberts, Allie Mills, Dan Lawrence. Patty McCormack, and more in Off-Broadway's Mornings at 7. It's a splendid production of a great play and a masterclass in acting. It closes on December 5th, and it would be a real shame to miss it. I felt lucky to be able to see it. An all-star show cut like this comes along once in a generation. The ticket link is in the episode description. Meanwhile, Mr. Rubenstein was kind enough to share some of the stories of his career with me, including growing up with Arthur Rubenstein, his early performing credits in high school and college, auditioning for Cabaret, touring with John Raitt in On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, and the long and circuitous road that led him to star in Pippin. So now, without further ado, the great John Rubenstein. So I'd like to um, start by asking you how you first became interested in performing. In performing? Well, um, it goes back a long way, really. Um, my father was a, a musician, a pianist, and he traveled the world and uh, played concerts for uh, people all my life, all his life. And so, um, you know, that I was exposed at a very early age just to the, the whole sort of um, rhythm and, and um, protocol of being somebody whose job, whose, whose livelihood consisted of learning and grasping material, in his case, just music, and showing up to huge audiences and performing at a certain time, uh, having to show up and be there and deliver. Um, and so that was my dad's job. You know, I think a lot of kids whose, whose dads work in offices or who are doctors or lawyers or who, you know, do manual labor or, or carpenters, they sort of understand that whole mentality, that whole approach to life. And uh, it doesn't mean that they necessarily follow in those footsteps, but it's, it gives them insight and, and experience watching that kind of a life. And so to me, it appealed to me very much, I guess. And that's what sort of started me out in that way. And your father, of course, was Arthur Rubenstein, the great uh, pianist and everything. And I'm wondering, how did your parents feel about you being a performer, even though they were already in, in the arts world? Well, you know, again, it's a very different thing. He was a, he was a, a pianist, uh, uh, sort of one of the greats, one could even oh, argue. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I was just a kid in school. Uh, and, and, you know... It, uh, I believe very often young children sort of enter this world with whatever influences they get from their parents. 
but then in school or in whatever you know a, a circumstance that they find themselves in they discover what they're good at and what they're bad at it doesn't necessarily mean that they love it or hate it or chose it or didn't choose it but you know i was the kid that they would say oh uh, sing this la, la, la. I would sing oh you, you can you can you have a nice little voice so or uh, I was a sort of a lively show-offy kind of you know extroverted child and so if they had a little a little thing to do when I was in I remember in kindergarten we we did something about Christopher Columbus and the three boats you know the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria <laughs> and we uh, we enacted that. I guess it was on Columbus Day. I really don't remember. And I was selected to be one of the sailors standing in the boat. And I had a couple of lines to say, look, there's the shore or something like that. And boy, did I love that. I just thought that was fantastic. And it, that didn't make me decide to be an actor. But, but I found that unlike a lot of the kids in my little teeny weeny kindergarten class, uh, this was in, in LA in public school, um, I really enjoyed the parts where we got to stand in front of everybody and do stuff. Once we had a little, a little band and I was given a triangle and I got to go ding, you know, just at the right spot in the music. And because I was already taking piano lessons, I had a little bit of music going on in my, in my mentality. So uh, I hit my little dings just right on my little triangle. And gosh, I thought that was just the beginning and the end of things. And, and then, um, then I moved to New York uh, after second grade. And in second grade, uh, no, in third grade is when I started to, to go to school here in new york i um all of that all of that just developed so your question was how did my parents feel about it they they didn't feel one way or the other they were sort of used to honey is in is in the play again or he's in the the little operetta or the little skit that they're doing and whenever they could and whenever they were in town they would come to my school and see me do my little stuff and they saw that I loved it. And maybe they saw that I was good at it. I don't know if I was, but I know that my teachers always picked me to sort of, you know, do the thing that, that took place on stage, as opposed to being the guy who was going to do the math competition. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That was never, they never chose me for that. So my parents were fine. <laughs> Growing up in New York, were you exposed to a lot of theater? Did you go to Broadway and? Yes, absolutely. My oldest sister, I have two sisters and one brother, and, and the, I'm the youngest, and the oldest is my sister, Eva, E-V-A, uh, not Eva, but Eva. And she was a dancer, oh. uh, started as a ballet dancer, and then she moved to New York also, and she danced with Martha Graham and she danced with Agnes DeMille and she did a, a USO road tour of Oklahoma, the musical, around Europe. Uh, that was where Jack Cassidy and Shirley Jones met playing Curly and Laurie in that. And she was one of the dancing girls in that. 
And then she came to New York and she was in a Broadway musical called, uh, called um, The Girl in Pink Tights, starring Zizi Jean-Mer, who was a French tiny little ballerina and big star, big ballet star in France. And this was her big Broadway musical, Zizi Jean-Mer. And, uh, and my sister was in the company, um, along with little baby, you know, like, I don't know how old they were, eight or nine, amazing tap dancers. Um, uh, oh, Gregory Maurice and, Yeah, Greg and Maurice Hines. They were little boys and they were in that company with her. Um, and then she moved into acting and, and she, she was in the Dibbuk off-Broadway with Morris Karnofsky, a very sort of renowned uh, uh, presentation of that play. And then uh, she was in the original Broadway production of The Diary of Anne Frank uh, that Garson Kanan directed. Uh, Susan Strasberg played, Lee Strasberg's daughter, played uh, Anne in that. But my sister Eva played her older sister, Margot. She created that role and played it on Broadway for its whole run. So when I was in fourth, I guess, in fifth grades, Eva, my sister, was going to Broadway every night and doing the show. So I also, I never went with her, you know, because I was too little, but, um, but I was aware that she was doing eight shows a week and that was sort of her rhythm. Um, and so I got exposed in that way and then, also, my parents were tremendous lovers of the theater and knew a lot of theater folks. So they always went to the theater and whenever they could, they took me and my other sister, Lali, Alina, who is, um, you know, much closer to my age. We were sort of partners and my older brother and sister were partners. And um, yeah, so starting at the age of around seven, I started going to the theater and those were the arguable golden years of theater in New York. It was, that was 1954 and five. And on through uh, high school, 1964, I left to go back to California to go to UCLA. So from 54 to 64, it was really 11 years. I was, um, I saw pretty much everything, all the plays, all the musicals. And the ones that I loved, I had all of, of course, all of the albums of the, of the musicals, but uh, I would go and, you know, sneak in at, at, the, uh, at the intermission. You could do that in those days. And I'd watch the second acts again and again. And if I, you know, saved up my allowance, I could have, <laughs> a kid my age could afford to go to the theater in those days, in this city. That, to my great sense of, loss and tragedy for you people of your age. Where do you live? Do you live here? Yes, yes, I live on the Upper East Side. Okay, so maybe your parents have plenty of money. Most kids don't because the tickets started, whatever they start at, $80 or $90, that's the cheapest seats. And the good seats are $200, $300, It's insane. And I, in those days, in the 50s and the 60s, on my allowance, I could, I could see a show. I remember I, I took my first date to a theater show. To, it was the first play by Neil Simon 
called uh, Come Blow Your Horn. And I took her and I got fifth row center. And it was $7.50 a ticket. So 15 bucks was my, me and my date sitting in the best seats in the house to see Neil Simon's hit, first hit comedy. Um, that ain't possible anymore. If I wanted to sit in those same seats with my date in ninth grade or whatever I was in, forget about it, Charlie. That would cost me like $1,000 or something. So that's too bad because that going to the theater for those 11 years during my grade school and my high school years were my biggest education. That was my theater education. At least the, 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 the sort of huge observation part of it. And if I were that age now, no way. I'd see one show, maybe two, that's it. So I don't know what you do. I mean, again, you know, uh, the people with a lot of money, they can say, oh sure, yeah, go, go to the matinee today. But that eliminates 97% of the other kids. And among these uh, theatrical circles that your parents were part of, did you have mentors or even friends in that group? As oh, sure. I did. Uh, the main, I had many, but the main ones were Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon. <clears throat> Garson, as you probably know, I mean, he's long before your time. He was a writer. And he and his wife, Ruth Gordon, who was a famous stage actress and then later movie actress, well, not even later, simultaneously. She created the role of Dolly Levi in, in not Hello, Dolly, but in The Matchmaker by Thornton Wilder. Uh, and she did many movies and she and Garson together wrote screenplays. Some of the more famous ones were some of the romantic comedies with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Uh, they wrote many of those. And he wrote the famous um, Born Yesterday uh, on Broadway and, and, and many other plays and things. And then he directed a lot of things. So whenever he was directing something, he would invite me uh, to come and, and sit in at rehearsals, not just once, but anytime I wanted. And I took advantage of it whenever I could. I mean, I had school like you do. So the daytime rehearsals, I didn't always make it, but I, you know, I could parlay it into a lot of attendance. And so I, I saw him direct uh, Walter Matthau in, in, a, in a translation of a play, uh, Oh, Shot in the Dark, it was called. I was there. Uh, I think Julie Harris was in that too. Uh, and I saw him direct Robert Redford in uh, Sunday in New York. I saw him direct uh, Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl. Uh, he was the director of Funny Girl. He put it all together and I was sitting there at all those rehearsals. Marvin Hamlish was the rehearsal pianist. And, um, and then they went out of town with that. And, and when they came back, they were back at the Winter Garden ready to open. And I went to the stage door saying, hey, it's me, I'm back, you know, cause they all, the stage manager, everybody knew me. Um, and the guy at the door said, I'm sorry, no, no guests. I said, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Garson, Mr. Kanan uh, knows me and I'm invited. He said, um, Mr. Kanan was let go in Boston. Jerome Robbins is now directing this. So I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I didn't get to watch any more rehearsals of Funny Girl. 
And I would love to ask about your uh, experience studying at UCLA and later Juilliard. Did you? Yeah, well, um, I, I decided at, in high school that I, I was not going to go to college. I just didn't want to bother. I had written plenty of term papers on Moby Dick and I had, you know, learned my algebra like a good boy and all my science and history. And I, I got very, very good grades and that was enough. And I didn't want to go to some liberal arts place and, and have to learn Shakespeare or whatever it was. So uh, we were in London and we watched uh, our, our, my parents' friend, uh, Laurence Olivier was doing, um, uh, it was the cherry, or no, it wasn't the cherry orange. It was Uncle Vanya. Uncle Vanya out at Chichester, outside of London, the Chichester Festival. And it was a wonderful theater. And it was uh, Olivier playing uh, the doctor. It was Michael Redgrave playing Uncle Vanya. And it was uh, Olivier's new then wife, um, whose name is gone from my brain. He was married to Vivian Lee for a long time. And then he was married to fill in the blank. Joan Plowright. Joan Plowright, well done. And uh, she was playing uh, Sonia in, in that. So it was a fantastic production. We went out to dinner afterwards and uh, my parents said to uh, Olivier, well, our son John, you know, wants to be an actor and he's, uh, he, he refuses to go to college. He doesn't want to go to college. Uh, so could, would you please talk to him? And, and you know, and, <laughs> and Olivier said, hit the streets, boy. <laughs> my great victory. I don't have to go to college. Even Larry Olivier says don't. But my parents conspired with my high school principal and dean and they all worked on me and brainwashed me and so finally said all right all right all right i'll go to college but i have to be able to enter as a freshman and major in theater i don't want to go to some yale and harvard um i went to a nice private high school here in in manhattan and they prided themselves every year on we got three into harvard and four into yale and two into princeton and that was the deal that was how they sold their expensive uh tuitions to to parents um and so they were going to lose me because i got good grades and i could have probably gotten into all those places and i said no because Yale has a wonderful drama school, but it's extracurricular. You have to sort of squeeze it in around your big writing term papers on Moby Dick courses. And uh, then at night, you'll, you'll maybe put on a play, but it's, it's not part of the curriculum. The graduate school is the great Yale drama school, but forget about it when you're an undergraduate. So I said, there are three. There's Carnegie Tech in, in Pittsburgh, which is now called, I think, Carnegie Mellon. And there is Northwestern in Chicago, and there's UCLA out in LA. But USC, I don't think, had much of a drama school in those days. I mean, they probably had something, but it wasn't like it is now. And um, and I I I'd been to Chicago many times with my dad when he was playing there, and he always played there in the winter. So to me, Chicago meant it's not only ten below zero but there's a 40 mile an hour wind off the lake and you freeze the moment you leave your building, you can hardly walk. And I said, I don't know if I want that for four years. Um, 
oddly, two of my sons went to Northwestern and were very happy about it. <laughs> um, then, um, and then I went down to Pittsburgh and I had a, a sort of a, a meeting, whatever that admissions sort of thing is at, at, uh, at Carnegie Tech. And I just, I didn't feel comfortable there. I've since grown to love Pittsburgh. It's a great town. I've worked there several times. It's wonderful geographically, great restaurants, good theater. I mean, it's a wonderful town. But as a snot-nosed high school senior, uh, I said, nah, you know, I, I don't want to live in Pittsburgh. So LA was my original hometown. And I knew there I would probably have to drive a car, which I really wanted to do very badly. So that's where I went. I chose UCLA. Went out there and um, immediately was in plays. The first play I did there was Coriolanus by Shakespeare. I had done a lot of Shakespeare through my grade school and high school because I was lucky enough to have gone to two private schools here in Manhattan. One was St. Bernard's. Uh, which then stopped in the eighth grade, now goes to the ninth grade. Fantastic school up on 98th Street, run and established then by British masters. So it was run very much like a British, you know, what they call their private, I mean, public school. It's what we call private school. I don't know why those are interchangeable, but they took, and this is from grade three through eight, they took their public speaking and their singing and their reciting and their learning, memorizing poetry very seriously. Unlike all of the schools, I have five children that I have sent them all to, some private schools when I could afford it, now public schools when I no longer can. And they all have been in plays and they've done stuff and they've sung in choruses and all those kind of things. But it's very, very, this is a generalization. It's very, very sort of by the way. It's sort of the thing that, okay, the parents will all come and they'll see little Timmy standing up there on the stage and he'll go, he'll make the gestures, you know, on the holiday thing and he'll dress up as a turkey or whatever he is. And it's all very cute. But it's nothing like what we did. They made us learn these long poems and the whole class of 25 or 30 fellows would get up there and we'd each have a verse and we'd rehearse it and we'd recite it and we had to do it clearly and we had to know what we were talking about. The eighth grade performed a Shakespeare play every year, uncut. And in seventh grade, you were in the, the homeroom of the teacher, of the director of the next year's Shakespeare play. Edward Musgrove Strange was his name. And he used to work with a doily cart in England. He was an old performer, played the piano and the organ for all of the assemblies, wrote the Piero show, where we did it in, you know, Piero costumes with big clown outfits, where he wrote uh, sardonic political skits for us to do and songs. That was the seventh grade opus. And in his English class, because he was the English teacher, you learned the Shakespeare play that you were going to do the next year. So our play was Macbeth. And in seventh grade, we started reading Macbeth. Every boy, in, we're all boys. Every boy in the class 
read all the parts at one point or another. We just read the play to the end and then we started at the beginning, changed all the roles and started reading it again all year long, not just one semester, from September through May. And by the time we had done that, and we were ending our seventh grade year, we knew that play. He had told us all of the allusions to Greek mythology, to history, to British history, to Scottish history, to sexual stuff that we had no idea about, but that is referenced all the way through. By the time all of us knew that play, understood every word of it, and knew a lot about the characters too. So then he would assign the roles. I was cast as Macbeth. And then over the summer, along with our other reading lists of all these books we had to read, um, we learned our lines. So that when we came back in the fall in eighth grade with another homeroom teacher, but with our old Mr. Strange directing, we then rehearsed after school every day. And in December of our eighth grade year, we performed that play at the Hunter College Theater, which they rented because we had no theater then at school. It has a beautiful one now. They waited until I left to build that. So by the time I had finished eighth grade, I had done three Shakespeare plays because in sixth grade, he would use the lower grades as extras, as, as fill-ins, because we only had 20, 25 boys in a class. So in sixth grade, I was a, a, a sprite, a fairy in The Tempest. But, you know, being that, I listened to that play and was at the rehearsals and got to know it. In seventh grade, I was in Henry V. And there's a wonderful role in that play called The Boy. And he is a young kid who hangs out with, with the pistol, not pistol, he's not, uh, yeah, pistol and Bardolph and Nim, not Falstaff. He's, he dies off stage at the beginning of Henry V. You never see him. But those roustabouts, and there's this new character that wasn't in Henry the Fourth called the Boy, and he has a wonderful part with those old clowns. And then at one point they all leave, and he has a soliloquy. He has an almost page-long monologue where he decides to go to war and be part of the big battle. And lovely role. And and I got to know that. So in ninth grade. I switched schools. I went to a school called Collegiate. And they also not like the Brits back at St. Bernard's, but still they took their drama club, which is what it was called very seriously. And I did a lot of plays. And I did Henry V again, this time playing Henry. Did a Marcel Pagnol play in French, by gosh, um, for our French teacher. And, uh, and did, I, we did The Crucible by Arthur Miller. I did Harvey by Mary Chase, um, did uh, uh, You Can't Take It With You, did, um, gosh, a bunch of other plays. So by the time I finished high school, I was, I was trained. I had done a lot of different stuff, different styles, different kinds, big, big, heavy parts like Macbeth and Henry V and silly comedy stuff like in, in You Can't Take It With You. Um, and so when I got to UCLA, I was, I was ready for prime time. And I immediately started getting cast in all the big productions. And then, of course, and here was the blessing of going to college, as opposed to my original 
conviction that I didn't need to and didn't want to because way more than I ever would have gotten in the professional world, I might've gotten a part here and there at the age of 17 and 18 or whatever I was. You know, I looked younger, I was skinny and weird looking and yeah, I might've gotten in something somewhere. I doubt it, but I might have. But I never would have spent the next four years doing plays with other really talented young people in their late teens and early 20s, doing Shakespeare, doing Chekhov, doing modern weird stuff, doing student written stuff, original material that you had to write for writing class and learning how to do makeup and learning how to build scenery and, and how to and run shift crews and you know run sound, uh, in those days it wasn't easy like it is now with all the computers it was it was a whole different thing so anyway those years at UCLA I am so happy not to mention the lifelong friends I made there and I'd love to ask you about one of your first uh, professional jobs which was touring with on a clear day you can see forever with Howard Elon others and so how did this sort of happen well um I got an agent while still at school. I, I started my freshman year in 1964. And in the summer of 1965, um, in, the, in the spring of 65, while we were all still in school, there was a big audition held out in Anaheim where the angels play. And there was a round, there was, it was a fashion to have round theaters where the audience sat all the way around a round stage not even thrust like many stages are now, but all the way around. Um, and there, there were many summer theaters like that. And, uh, and there was sort of a general cattle call for their season of musicals. And they would run a musical for two weeks there in Anaheim and up in San Carlos, which is just south of San Francisco uh, near the airport. Um, and so I went out with some of my older friends. I was just, you know, I was 18. Um, to, to do the catechol, I didn't have an equity card. I didn't know what to do. And we arrived there all in our car. We drove, to, I drove actually, and, but there were about five of us. And they all had their equity cards or something. And they, they went in and they did their auditions, but they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have an equity card. So one of my friends, after he'd finished his audition, he slipped me his equity card. And he said, use this. And although he had already been in, I showed them that as my equity card and they let me in. So, and then I changed my name on the thing. I said, no, 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 that's not me, that's him. This is me and they just wrote my name in. I did my audition, which was a piece of special material that a guy had written for me at UCLA. He had seen me audition for a musical comedy class there. And then a week later, I was playing the piano in one of the practice rooms in the music building. And he just opened the door and said, you're, you're the kid who sang the whatchamacallit. I said, yeah. He said, I've written this for you. And he wrote me a special song just for me about a weird little unhappy boy who did thing, but it had a little monologue in the middle, a little weird soliloquy. And then he sang, ah, you know. And so I brought my music for that and gave it to the accompanist. And no, I didn't give it to the guy. One of the people who went out with us was our friend, Barbara, who played the piano. So she had already played it, so she knew it. It was special material. 
So she played for me and I sang my little songs. And they hired me on the spot. They said, hey, do you want to be in Camelot? I said, yes. I said, okay. There's a kid that comes on. I'd seen Camelot here on its actual opening night with, with uh, you know, uh, you know who? <laughs> Richard Burton. Oh, yeah. Richard Burton and Julie Andrews and Robert Goulet and all those guys. Uh, my parents had been invited by Alan J. Lerner to go, but they didn't want to go that night. So they gave my sister and me the tickets. So we went to the opening night. It's really great. But I loved that show. So I said, yeah. And so I was to play the kid who runs on at the very, very last scene of the show after three hours have gone by. The kid, the little kid, he's eight years old. He comes on, the audience goes, oh, and he wants to fight. And, and King Arthur says, no, no, my boy, go back and tell the world of the glory of the round table, what we tried to do. Think back on the, the, the fleeting wisp of glory that was Camelot. And, you know, they used that as much of the eulogy for Jack Kennedy after he was assassinated just, uh, just a couple of years later, uh, just a couple of years before my audition. So anyway, um, I was ecstatic. And I did, I went up to San Carlos. I, that was where I first appeared on stage with a paycheck. Did the show there with Howard Keel for two weeks. And then we came down to Anaheim near where I lived and, and we did it for another two weeks there. And then, um, and then the next, and then, and then, I went, I, then I went up to Wyoming and played the piano and was a musical director for a tourist theater, musical theater where we, didn't pay royalties and did we did hello dolly and we called it so long deary so that we wouldn't have to pay the royalties but we did really pretty good productions for the people visiting yellowstone so anyway after all that i got back to la and hugh o'brien who was a tv star played wyatt Earp on television good guy he decided, I don't know if he went to UCLA, maybe he had, I didn't know. But he established the Hugh O'Brien Awards at UCLA. And um, some people sort of laughed because he was Wyatt Earp. He wasn't Richard Burton, you know what I mean? Oh, the acting awards. But we were all really glad about it. And it was a, an evening of scenes. You picked your scene, if you were, you were picked by the faculty to be one of the three contestants, three males, three females. I was one of the guys. And I did a scene from Love, L-U-V by Murray Shisnell. I played the Alan Arkin part. Did a pretty long scene from it, directed by Rob Reiner, who was a, who was a classmate. I mean, he was younger than me, but he was there. And, you know, I asked him to direct it for no apparent reason. And that started his directing career, I might say. That was the first thing he had ever directed. Um, his father later came, we worked together, Carl Reiner and I. And he said, you know, you were, the first, you were the first person who ever asked Rob to direct. I said, well, thank me, you know, next time you get an Oscar. Um, but I won the Hugh O'Brien Awards. And part of what that was, was, uh, agents were invited to it, which wasn't a thing then. It sort of is now in college drama schools. They, there's sort of some night or a couple of nights where all the drama kids 
do some kind of showcase and their agents and managers and whoever the hell else they can work in. And sometimes that helps them. So this was that, but it wasn't a, a commonplace thing. It had just started. And I got an agent. I was 18, 19 by then. And um, she was a kid's agent. She handled, you know, little tots who acted mostly in commercials, but still, you know, there were little kids working and she was a kiddie agent and I was <laughs> beyond her age range. But she said, I said, sure. She was the only agent available. And I was working in uh, doing little parts on shows. And then I really aged out after a year and I got another agent, a big agency. Um, and they, that big agency was called Ashley Famous, AFA, Ashley Famous Agency. They merged and blended with 19 other agencies since then. So there might be some little shred of Ashley Famous that still exists in the basement of William Morris or, or ICM or something, I don't know. But anyway, they were hot at the time. And they had a big package of that road company, that national tour of On a Clear Day. And they handled the bigger stars. They handled, I guess they handled Howard Keel. I don't know. And, um, and so I got the uh, William Daniels part in that. He plays the fiance of the leading lady uh, who, had, who was the same woman who had played Queen Guinevere in, in the Camelot that I originally did the first year. I had done it again twice before on a clear day, both with Howard. Whenever he would do Camelot again, he would say, hey, there's this guy, he's older, he's not eight or nine, but he's a teenager, but he, he makes that last scene really good. I, I wanna do it with him. So he would get me hired in Salt Lake City and out in West Covina. So I did Camelot with him a bunch of times. Um, so that's how I got into that. Oh, yes. And what was that experience like of touring with him then around the country? Oh, that was fantastic. Um, I was in my senior year at college, and um, we had started the fall semester, and it was late November. And that's when that took place, and it was going to leave town on New Year's Eve day, December 31st. So I quit college. I never graduated. I said, I got a job. It's a seven month tour, 165 cities, mostly one nighters, some two nighters. I think there was one three nighter or maybe two, but that was it. It was mostly one night. Show up in town around four or five in the afternoon, grab dinner, unpack your clothes or no, don't just dump your suitcase on your bed. Go into the bus to the theater do the show eight o'clock in the morning get back on the bus and go to the next place that's what it was and it was fabulous and we all became such good friends that crew the crew of course would load out after the show and drive all night in their trucks two or three trucks to the next town and get there sleep probably three hours and then set the setup and the lights and everything. So that by the time we showed up there in the late afternoon or early evening, the thing was ready to go. And then they would sleep the moment they had finished setting it up, most of the crew, some of them had to run the show, but the drivers would sleep during the show so that after the show, they were ready for the loadout and the drive again, crazy life. But you really do, you get close to people. 
Um, we had so much fun. We used to go back to the lobbies of the hotel. There would always be pianos. There aren't always anymore, but there were in those days. And we would play and we would sing and we would just do crazy stuff. There was one night in Ashtabula, Ohio, where it, it snowed so hard that our show was canceled. It was the only one that was ever canceled. But nobody, the audience wasn't gonna be able to make it to the show and the trucks couldn't get through. I mean, it was, forget it. So we had the night off and we were sitting in this weird hotel in Ashtabula and John Raitt, at that point was, was playing the lead guy. It wasn't uh, Howard anymore. And we all were just singing. I knew all the songs by heart, you know, from playing them off the albums all my life. So everybody was saying, oh, play, you know, Mame, oh, got the blues right out. And I would play the songs and all the guys and girls would sing their audition material or whatever. And then it came, everybody started saying, John, to rate sing something and he said oh well you know, I don't know and somebody said sing the soliloquy from carousel he said no, no no of course not i don't have the music and i said i know it he said well john i know you play the piano but you can't play the soliloquy in the right key and everything and all the parts by heart i said i said yeah i can and there was another piano in another room which we sort of knew about so he said all right, come into the next room with me and let's go through it and let's just see. So I went to the other room with John Raitt and indeed I of course did know the soliloquy from beginning to end by heart in the right key, which I copied off of his recording on the original cast album, including a part that's on that original cast album that he always sang that is no longer in the published material and hasn't been. When I have a daughter, I'll sit around in bar rooms Oh, how I'll boast and glow. Friends will see me coming and empty all the bar rooms. Through every door they'll go. Oh, it's a beautiful little interim that leads into my little girl, right? Uh, and I knew that. And he said, what? Nobody knows that. That's not even in the score anymore. I said, well, you put it on the old album, so I know it. So he loved me. And we went back in the other room and he sang the goddamn soliloquy for the cast. And it was one of the great memories of my life. And so how did uh, doing On the Clear Day, how did that sort of lead to Pippin, to starring in Pippin? It didn't really lead to oh, really? There were, um, that was 1968. Pippin was in 72. I mean, it led to Pippin in that I did do a show eight times a week for months and months and months with all kinds of different actors. I mean, uh, uh, I, and then we did it, uh, they reconstituted it with, a, with Tammy Grimes playing the lead, John Cullum playing the guy who, and he had done it on Broadway originally. Um, so, so by the time I finished that run, I was now a sort of a veteran theater guy. You know, I'd played all around the country. I had had my first experience because, you know, all those Camelots were two weeks. I did a couple of South Pacifics. I did some other shows, but it was always a two week engagement. You know, you did 16 shows and then went home. But this was night after night, week after week, summer, winter, spring and fall. So um, I sort of got my sea legs. I knew I knew what I was doing 
more than before. So to that degree, that Clear Day tour was very important. But while I was on the road, I got a call from another guy who had at a studio at Columbia Studios. And Carl Reiner had done a movie, directed a movie of his play, Enter Laughing. And my other agent, Ashley Famous, had gotten me in to audition for the lead role in that movie, which is a young man wanting to be an actor. And um, I had done well in my audition, but I didn't get the part, you know. Um, but the head of talent at Columbia, whom I, I guess met because he was in the room, this was of course long before the days of videotape and cell phone. So all auditions were in the room with all the people which was in some ways way better than it is now. And in other ways, scary. But anyway, he had, always, he had been in there for my audition and for my callback or whatever I went through. Didn't get the part. Now it's many months later and I'm on the road. I was in Denver, Colorado. And I got a call from him at the hotel. No cell phones, of course. So-and-so is calling you. I, I didn't know who he was. But um, I called him back. He said, I'm Walter Bacall, and I was the head of talent at Columbia, and I saw your auditions for Angel Laughing. And I thought you did a really good job. But, but now I'm an agent, and I'm with the Phil Gersh Agency, and I'm just starting out my career as an agent. But I know a lot of people, and I would like you to be a client of mine when you come back from the tour. And I said, yay. Sounds great to me, because I wasn't crazy about Ashley Famous. They were very nice people, and they had put me in that big show, but they didn't really represent me very much. They represented big stars and big directors, and nobody knew who the hell I was. So this was a much smaller agency, and a guy who had actually seen me and reached out to say, hey, I want to represent you. And that agent, Walter Bickel, B-E-A-K-E-L, He's now dead, wonderful man. And he, he really pushed my career forward because he would go into these studios. He was an old Chicago guy and uh, he would represent me. He did the kind of thing that every young actor or old actor, I still do, dream of having an agent do, which is to say, you got to see my guy. Not just, here's a list of the, if it's a small agency of the two or three, if it's a big agency of the 20 or 30 men we represent who could play this role that you have in this movie or in this play or whatever. That's mostly what agents do now. Here's the list. You, if, and the casting people will say, oh, yeah, we've heard of this guy and we've heard of, no, not him, not him, not him, not him. Oh, yeah, this guy. Yeah, bring him in. And no, not him, not him, not him, not him. And that's how casting goes nowadays. Agencies supply the lists. Casting directors cherry pick the few that they want to bring in to the director and producer or whoever. And that's how it goes. If, if they don't pick you, it one time maybe out of 200 the agent actually will call up 
the casting people or the directors, they know them and say, no, 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 you didn't pick my guy, but you've got to see him because he has done this and this and this, and he's perfect for this one, blah, blah, blah. They just simply almost never do that anymore. But this guy, Walter, did that for me again and again and again and again. And um, I started getting big parts on television, in other words, guest star parts. Every two-line part nowadays on a TV episode is called guest star, but it isn't. It's a, it's a cameo, it's a walk-up, it's a one-day role, it's a two-line part. I play a lot of those, so I have no <laughs> condescension. I play a judge, I show up, I go, overruled, and that's my day's work, and I'm grateful for the work. But when I was a young teenager or early in, early in my 20s, I started getting the guest star role, which means the regulars are the regulars, but I'm the guy who is the perpetrator, I'm the criminal of the week, I'm the whatever I am. But the show is about me and my story. And I got a lot of those parts, one after the other after the other for years. And, um, and then, well, then, then Pippin was a very long story. I've, oh, well, I would love to hear it if you would, if you would like to tell it. Or okay, well, I don't know who listens to your podcast, but if if you've heard me on other interview shows or something telling this story, it's going to be the same story again. So please <laughs> forgive me. That agent got me an audition for the lead role in a big movie. A relatively big movie. It wasn't a big movie like we think of big movies today, but it was a solid movie uh, called Zachariah. And it was a, a sort of a modernistic take on Siddhartha, a great novel by Hermann Hesse about a young man finding himself, trying to figure out what his life about. He goes on a very long journey. This is in India, of course, long journey with his friend, and the, he and the boy friend become alienated. He, Siddhartha seeks the, the beautiful path of, of enlightenment and the other guy chooses the path of, you know, whatever greed and violence. At the end, they come together, they have an understanding and they have both learned the truth. That's Siddhartha. So <laughs> there was this group called the Fire Sign Theater. They still are around, one of them, has passed away, but the other three are still around and they still show up. They're my age, you know, they're in their seventies, but they're funny, great, crazy improv radio guys. And they used to do radio shows and release LPs, albums of their stuff, crazy stoned out improv comedy, wacko, but brilliant. So they got those four guys together to write the screenplay of a Western based on Siddhartha with rock musicians playing rock and roll, you know, electronic guitars and basses and with big amplifiers plugged into the desert sand in 1865 um, when electricity did not exist. So that was Zachariah. And I played Zachariah. Don Johnson, who became very big on Miami Vice and is well, very well known now, um, played 
Matthew, who was the, the friend Govinda in, in Siddhartha. Uh, he goes wrong and I go right. And there were great museums, Joe Walsh, there was Country Joe and the Fish, there was uh, Doug Kershaw, great Cajun fiddler. Uh, there was the New York rock ensemble. Uh, I mean, there were great musicians and, and Elvin Jones, one of the great jazz drummers of all jazz history. Uh, he played the main bad guy uh, that I shot in a, in a duo. So anyway, um, I did that movie. That movie company was called ABC Pictures. Um, and they made only two movies, that one and Cabaret. They hadn't made Cabaret yet when they made Zachariah. A few years earlier, I had been back to New York uh, for Christmas or whenever it was, and I'd seen Cabaret on Broadway. And I just loved it. It was fantastic. I came back to LA and I told all my friends, oh my God, Cabaret is so beautiful and how Prince has directed it and Joel Gray kills. And I, I love the whole thing. Uh, Jill Hayworth was amazing. Uh, yeah, so many actors, a lot of Lenya for gosh sake was in it, you know, and Jack Guilford who had been in the diary of Anne Frank with my sister. Um, so a friend of mine at UCLA, a guy named Barry Moss, M-O-S-S, later became a very big casting director on Broadway, cast some of the best shows for decades, but was then just, you know, he was working for the Academy, as a matter of fact, the Academy of Motion Pictures. He called up Hal Prince's office and he said, um, my friend, uh, I mean, not my friend, I don't know how he put it, but he said, you've got to see John Rubenstein to take over for Joel Gray because Joel Gray had won his Tony and he'd done the show and he was about to leave whenever that was. And, and he got me an audition for I flew to New York and I had an interview with Hal Prince's right-hand lady. Um, name is gone. Ruth Mitchell. Ruth Mitchell, thank you very much. Oh. I think, no, Ruth was, is, but there was Anne, somebody. Was there an Anne? You have, anyway. It might have been Ruth, but I think it wasn't. I think somebody named, and this was, mind you, in 1960 something. So Ruth maybe wasn't as much on the scene as she was later. I don't know. I know Ruth very well from later. Um, and she said, okay, well, what have you done? And I said, well, you know, I did On a Clear Day and I did Camelots and I, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she said, well, okay, uh, you know, uh, Generally, you know, Mr. Prince likes to see slightly more <laughs> trained Broadway people, but uh, Mr. Morse got you this uh, audition and we love him. And I said, no, Mr. Moss. She said, oh, I, I thought Barry Morse, who was a well-known at the time actor, M-O-R-S-E, Barry Morse. She said, wasn't it Barry Morse who called? I said, well, um, no, it, it was Barry Moss. And then she said, oh. Well, that's a, a mistake then. Well, anyway, you flew out here, so you might as well audition. So I went in and I auditioned. I sang Willkommen, you know, did it as well as I could. And they called me back. I said, oh my God, but, but Hal Prince said, but when you come back, put on the full makeup. 
they gave me tickets to see the show, which I'd already seen, but I ha happily saw again. Copy Joel Gray's makeup and do that. Okay. I did. I went to the thing. I bought the makeup. I put the white face on and the little lips and the weird eyebrows and the, and the eye stuff. And I looked exactly like Joel Gray, except that I had the hair. And so I polished that down and I tried to make myself look as Joel Gray-y as I could. What I didn't do was rent myself a little white tie and tails, a little MC outfit like he wore, which would have hidden my gangly 19-year-old body. That I should have done, or 20, however old. I don't remember how old I was, but I was around that age. I should have done that. I didn't do it. Um, so I still looked like, you know, I was 15 and, and, and maybe high school if I was lucky. I, got, I went back to L.A. because I was still in school. And, and uh, I got a letter from Hal saying, Dear John, you were the best person who auditioned for me for this role. And I say that honestly. However, there's no way I can give you the part because you look too young. And this guy has to have been around the block three, if not seven times. And nobody's going to buy you walking on stage and being that guy, no matter how good you are. But you've got a big future. So that was hugely encouraging and inspiring. So cut to bunch of years later, I'm invited to a party by the ABC Pictures CEO, who has given me, along with the director and everybody else, the starring role in their big movie, Zachariah. So I'm, my stocks are hot. I'm the, I'm the hot new young thing. So I have the balls to walk up to him at this party and say, hey, Marty, um, you're doing the movie of Cabaret, I hear. And he said, yes, yes, we are. And I said, I want to play Joel Gray's part. He said, well, we've got Joel Gray. End of story. That was the end of that. All right, so Zachariah is being worked on. It hasn't come out yet. So nobody knew then that it was going to be a big flop. So I get a phone call from that same guy about three, two months later, saying, hey, John, can you uh, do a British accent? I said, yeah, I went to a British school. I can do a better British accent than an American. He said, okay, well, because uh, we've cast Michael York as the lead in our musical, uh, you know, opposite Liza Minnelli. I said, oh, yeah, Liza. I grew up with Liza Minnelli back in Beverly Hills. Uh, her parents, Vincent and Judy Garland, were... Uh, dear friends of my parents and we all as little tiny kids with Candy Bergen and all those guys we were all buddies so I knew Eliza forever that I said yeah I said well we've lost Michael York because he had another movie scheduled and now our schedule and his don't work so it looks like he's going to have to he's trying to fix it but I don't think it's going to happen so we need a new guy and you you would be good for that if you can do British and I said no problem she says, okay, well, come and meet Bob Fosse at, at, uh, at whatever studio that was. Paramount? I don't remember. Um, they had, you know, space at a studio. So I went and met Bob for the first time. And we, uh, you know, we talked just for about five minutes. He said, okay, we'll do a screen test. 
and I'll see you uh, in a few days. So I show up again, no videotape, you know, a, a real test for a movie was on a movie set with all the cameras and lights and crew and you shot a scene and they took the film and they developed it and they edited it and then that was your audition. So I went to the studio and there was the set and I tied my hair back in a bun so you couldn't see it if I looked straight ahead. And with a, a woman that he had hired to do the offstage reading, I did two scenes with Sally Bowles from Cabaret playing the, the Michael York part. And it went well, and I really hit it off with Bob. We laughed and, you know, uh, I'd seen all of his shows, of course, uh, growing up, uh, you know, the How to Succeed in Business and all the shows with Gwen Verdon and Redhead and Sweet Charity. I mean, I, I knew Bob Fosse backwards and forwards. And so we talked Broadway. But still, we did the work, and that was the end of my screen test. And then I got a call saying, uh, Michael York fixed his schedule. He's going to do the movie. So, end of story. About eight or nine months later, I'm sitting at home. My wife, Judy, my first wife, was very pregnant. She was like eight months pregnant. And um, she had been and was a dancer. She had danced on Broadway in several shows. Uh, she had been in the first Hal Prince directed show called Family Affair. And she'd uh, danced in uh, the original She Loves Me for its whole run. And, and she had done Pal Joey at City Center with Bob Fosse playing Joey. So she had been in the chorus. So she knew Bob. So anyway, 10 months later, the phone rings. I say, hello. Hi, this is Bob Fosse. I said, oh. Hey, how are you? You know, he said, I'm fine. Can you sing? I said, well, um, I can't say yes, I can sing because I, 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 my voice isn't very good. Uh, but I've certainly done musicals and I have sung and I can hold a tune and I can sing loud and I can act and sing. But you're never going to want to buy a record of me singing. <laughs> so yes and no. He said, that's good enough. Um, I got a musical and I want to see if you're interested. Can I come over for dinner? And I said, yeah. So he came over for dinner that very night. He said, hey, Judy. And she said, hey, Bob. <laughs> Judy made dinner. We all ate and talked. And then I went to the piano and I sat down and I played two songs by a singer-songwriter who is, remains to this day my favorite of all, Laura Nero. N-Y-R-O, Laura Nero, she died some years ago, way too young, wrote some of the best tunes. Stephen Schwartz got tremendous inspiration and even stole a couple of things from her, as did most writers and especially rock musicians, pop musicians and composers in those days. There's little traces of Laura Nero, if not big traces, in many, many, many of the greatest names in pop music over the last 30, 40 years. Anyway, she wrote great albums. I loved them. I knew them all by heart and played them all on the piano as she did. And so I went to the piano and I played two of my favorite Laura Nero songs and sang them for Bob. He said, ah, that's not bad, that's pretty good. And we sat down on the couch and he had the script with him of Pippin. And he read all the parts and I read Pippin. From the beginning to the end, we read through the whole show including the song lyrics. 
So I sat there saying, I want to be where my spirit can run free. You know, it was a little bit weird. Um, and we had a good time and he left. Um, and now my wife and I are going to bed. It's like 11, 11.30. She's very pregnant. We're, uh, it was the first door you came to up a very steep flight of staircases in the, in the hills in, in uh, LA. Uh, the upstairs was the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, but downstairs was the bedroom and that's what she, so we're turning off the light, we're going to sleep and knock, knock on the door. Those were the days before you were scared shitless, uh, pardon my French. Those were the days before you were scared if somebody would knock on your door in the middle of the night, if you weren't scared going out and having people over, nothing. So yeah, I opened the door and who's standing there, of course, Bob Fossey holding a tape, a cassette tape. He says, take this, learn the second song and come to New York in three days. So there's the tape and it's Stephen Schwartz playing and singing the whole score of Pippin, all the songs. Second one, was Corner of the Sky. No sheet music. So I played it and learned it, you know, off the tape. Flew to New York in three days. They had put out an ad in the New York Times saying any young actor between the ages of 18 and 30 who wants to play the title role in the new Bob Fosse musical. They didn't say Stephen Schwartz. He'd written Godspell, but he wasn't an a household name yet come to the i think it was the uh it was the majestic if i'm not mistaken theater on such and such a day so i go to my appointment my audition and there's a line around the block down 44th or 45th street whatever that was and down 8th avenue all these guys some old hippies with long hair and beards, some young little almost high school kids with their eight by tens, you know, with short little hair. Just everybody you could think of was there, <clears throat> mostly without an appointment. They had just answered the ad. A few of us, I don't know how many, four or five of us had appointments. We were equity members and we went in. And I went down into the orchestra pit because I had no sheet music for my Laura Nero songs. And I played the piano and looked up at Bob Fosse and Roger Herson and Stephen Schwartz and Stuart Ostro, the producer, as they looked down, leaning on the thing. And I sang my two Laura Nero songs to them. And then I came up onto the stage and they had their accompanist and I sang Corner of the Sky, which I'd learned. And um, then they talked back in the house for a few minutes, not long. And then Bob ran down the aisle and came up to the foot of the stage and said, part's yours if you want it. That was it. That's the story. And what was it like to work with Bob Fosse in rehearsals? And did you consider yourself a dancer? Consider, no, no, no. I was not a dancer. I never considered myself a good singer, but I could always say I could sing. I would never say I could dance. And there was a point in rehearsals where I went to Bob because I was sort of sitting cross-legged on the stage or something, watching number after number after number that were amazing. Ben Vereen doing this, uh, uh, Irene Ryan stopping the show. I mean, everybody and his mother, uh, uh, Eric Berry playing the father, playing the king. It was fantastic. 
and the chorus, the dancers were just the best on Broadway. Probably still to this date, some of the best dancers that ever stood on a Broadway stage, much less danced on one. And about 45 minutes into the play, I said, wait a minute. And this wasn't my ego talking, although it sounds like it was, but it really wasn't. I was thinking as a drama student, as a, as a person who loves the theater. I said, wait a minute, this is about Pippin. We're supposed to be following this kid through his dilemmas and traumas. And, and he, what he's witnessing and, and thinking about is what we're watching. So that of course makes perfect sense. But somewhere in this, we're not hearing from Pippin. Pippin is sort of on the sidelines. He's sort of an audience member. He has nothing to do with anything. Um, and so I was, I, I, I felt that. I felt that as when we did run-throughs, I said, I don't really show up in this darn thing until quite late in the, in the play. Um, so I went to Bob. And I said, I said that, and also here I am playing the title role in a musical directed and choreographed by you. And I never dance. And he said, well, John, you can't dance. <laughs> I said, well, yes, I understand that. And that's absolutely right. But um, that's sort of your problem. Can't you do something about that? And he said, yes. And he created, a number called On the Right Track. The song was always there, but it was Ben Vereen singing to Pippin. Come on, don't give up, you're on the right track. Take it easy. Um, and dancing around and about and above and beyond me. As I, again, sat there watching him being awed. And at the end, I, I'm supposed to say, oh no, I, 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 I said, well, he took us, he said, we have to do this out of rehearsal because it's not scheduled. I said, okay, and we won't pay you for the extra rehearsal. I said, wow, to myself as a union man, I said, oh, here I am at a big Broadway musical, sort of at the top of the, top of the peak of union work. And uh, I'm being told I have to work for no pay secretly under the table. <clears throat> okay, I, I just put that in my pipe and smoked it. Um, but we did, we, we, we would finish rehearsal, normal rehearsal. Everybody would go home. We'd go out and have some quick dinner. And then we'd go back secretly to the studio. <laughs> and Ben and I and Bob would work into the night. And he made On the Right Track, which he turned into a number where the leading player, Ben, tries to make Pippin dance. In other words, the metaphor for, come on, kid. Don't be such a wuss. Don't give up shape up, do these steps, jump around, twirl about, and make something of yourself. And so it was a great number. And I even got to dance a whole bunch of really difficult steps that over a period of two plus years, I may have done correctly 10 or maybe a dozen times, but it didn't matter. I did it the best I could every single night. I never pretended to be unable to do it because I didn't need to pretend. And it was a dance number and I got to dance in that play. But working with Bob was fantastic. I adored him. Um, he remained a, a dear friend until the day he died. And uh, I miss him to this day. Oh yeah. And this is sort of 
a broad question, but what do you think the magic was of the show Pippin that it was so long running and successful? And it's very hard for me to say because I was I stood in the middle of it, you know. Um, we didn't get good reviews, and and I have all kinds of theories as to why that was. But it was it was and it remains. It's sort of thin. It's a thin piece of material. It's an everyman character, and he tries this and is disillusioned, and he tries that and it's disillusioned, and the girl and the little boy, and uh, he loves them sort of, but not really, it's not big enough. And so then the devil character, the Faust devil sort of figure, the MC from Cabaret figure, the, that guy comes to him and says, look, you will always be remembered if you commit public suicide. Again, a metaphor for doing something so awful. In those days, we still had very much in our memories, the assassinations. We all know who Sirhan Sirhan is. We all know who killed John Kennedy and who killed Martin Luther King. Those people are famous. And so not only suicide, but any kind of awful, awful public act of violence and horror. You can, you will be remembered. You will have achieved something. You will be extraordinary. And Pippin says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I want, I wanted, it's in the past tense. I wanted magic shows and miracles. But he, I know I'm going to settle for, for a woman who loves me and I love her and our little boy that we're going to take care of. And that's an achievement and that's good. That's happy. There was something really good about that, but it was also a little obvious. Okay. You know, what made it amazing was Bob's work on it. The songs were good. You know, and I've done Pippin a whole second time for another two years. So I'm, I'm real familiar with, with that show. The, the music is very good. It's really fun to listen to. And there are a few moments in it that are outstanding, like Morning Glow is a great number. But I could argue, and, and you know, not to belittle any of the achievements of Stephen Schwartz, which I admire tremendously especially since he also writes the lyrics, which is amazing. The, the, the music is okay. It's not, it's not the greatest score ever written for Broadway. So it got these middling, very sort of condescending reviews. However, they all said that the direction and the choreography and the sets and the costumes and the lighting and the performance by Ben Vereen were history making. They did say that. That was included in almost every even mediocre to negative review. So it, it, it allowed us to survive. They weren't great reviews that made us a hit. They were bad reviews with enough of that kind of praise and excitement over those elements. Fossey and Ben and the technical stuff that we survived. And then Bob had the earth-shaking idea. Let's make something that has never been done before, 
a television commercial or our Broadway musical. What? That's not done. <laughs> well, let's, let's do it. And he took a little section of the show rather than the stuff they do now. They always do, almost always do um, uh, medleys, you know, sort of uh, uh, montages. You'll see an advertisement for Lion King and you'll see this happen and that happen and another scene and another character and a big mask and a thing and a lion and a book and wow, come see Lion King. And they do that with all the shows, bits of it. He took one weird little moment of the show, which was in the middle of a war musical number about war and killing, <clears throat> where Ben Vereen and two girls behind him, Pam Sousa and Candy Brown, danced a little tune. <clears throat> Pardon. It was called the Manson Trio because of Charles Manson who had assassinated, you know, Sharon Tate and, and her baby and, and other people, the famous Tate LaBianca murders. So <laughs> he was famous and still is Charles Manson. So that was the Manson trio. So in the middle of this war, there's Ben with a big grin and a little straw hat and a cane and the two girls also in straw hats and canes behind him dancing this little fossy dance. Da, 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 da. And no words, they had no lyrics, they sang nothing. There was no explanation. This is the story about a young man who blah, 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 nothing. They just showed that little dance. And then at the end, an announcer's voice came on and said something like, you have just seen 60 seconds of the new Broadway musical Pippin. If you want to see the remaining two and a quarter hours, come to the Imperial Theater. That was it. And that made us a hit because people saw that all over the country and they came from Minnesota and from, you know, Texas and Oregon and they came to New York and they came to see Pippin. And by then it had also gotten better just from practice and they loved it. And people have loved Pippin ever since. Oh yeah. And you mentioned uh, that you did it. And what was it like to return to it? And I believe 2013 as Charles instead of uh, Pippin. Well, it was great. I loved it. I, I had more fun. It was sort of reminiscent of my tour of On a Clear Day, uh, almost 50 years earlier. But it was this time we would stay a week in a place, sometimes even two weeks and in a couple of places, three or four weeks. So it was luxurious. You didn't have to hit the bus at eight in the morning. And it was great. Um, it, but I if you live in a house for a long time as a young person, and it's your house, maybe it's your parents' house too, and you all live there together, and you share memories, and that's your room, and that's your kitchen, and that's your backyard. And now you leave, and the house is sold, and other people live there, and you live your life. But now by fate and circumstance, you're going to live there again, not just visit it, but move in. And it's been redecorated and there's a whole different kitchen and they've reorganized the two bedrooms so that now one is a library or a den and the other one is a workroom of some kind. They're not bedrooms. Your bedroom now is, is a guest room and it's sort of weird with different wallpaper. But 
And the backyard is completely different. They cut down the great old oak tree that was always there that used to climb. And now there's a couple of little hedges and pretty flowers, but it's completely different. But it's your old place. The street is your old street. And you walk out in that backyard and your tree isn't there, but it still smells the same. It's still, you know, it's, it's your place. And those rooms, yeah, the wallpaper is wrong, but that's your old room. And, and, and it's, it's your home. That's how it felt. It was very different and alien in many, many ways. And yet that was, that was my show. That, that was Pippin, that was my home. So I loved every minute of it. And what would you want to say or advice would you want to give to anyone doing Pippin now or in the future? Doing Pippin? Either the role or, or the show in general. Wow. Advice. I don't know if I'd have any advice. It's, it's a very difficult role. There are those roles. Uh, um, Bobby in Company is one. And there are many others where you're playing the central role. It's the starring part. But everybody else has the best material. And you're spending a lot of time sort of going, wow, oh, is that okay? Oh, what do you have to say about that? Oh, you're going to sing about it? All right, I'll, I'll listen to you. Wow, that was a great number you just sang. Audience went nuts. And I'm standing here listening. And I'm saying, wow, that was, thank you. Now I'll go to the, oh, and you have something to say? Oh, you're going to do a big song and a dance. All right, I'll just stand over here on the side and listen to you say that and watch that. And this play is about me listening to you and watching you, but you're doing the big number. There, that was sort of the experience that I talked to you about earlier, and that Bob really worked with me to ameliorate, to make it a little bit less like that. So that would be my advice is that it's, it's not really there for you in the material. You have to bring it. You have to make your Pippin so real, so approachable in a show about all these characters that are not really real. They're sort of crazy and they're sort of metaphorical and they're Charlemagne, they're history, but they're completely ridiculous, they're not, you know? so. And it's a musical and it has a big number about sex in it. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. You have to always know that the audience is connected umbilically to you. So you have to live on that stage. You can't just sit there and observe. You have to, you have to go through it 150% and relate to all of us who are trying to make something of our lives, whatever those lives are. It's not necessarily about show business at all. It's about just making one's life meaningful if one possibly can. And Pippin sort of tries to say that maybe just being with somebody, maybe just helping a kid get over his sadness at losing his pet duck, Maybe that's it. Maybe that's a great life. So the Pippin has to be aware of that and do that, not just stand up there and try to impress people with his high notes and how cute he is. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you.
Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by stage and screen legend Austin Pendleton. After making his debut opposite Barbara Harris in Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad off-Broadway, he went on to star in the original Fiddler on the Roof as Muddle and in The Little Foxes, an American Millionaire, Doubles, The Diary of Anne Frank, the recent Choir Boy, and the upcoming Broadway production of The Minutes. As a director, he directed Elizabeth Taylor and Maureen Stapleton in The Little Foxes, plus Shelter, Spoils of War, and the upcoming Between Riverside and Crazy, among others. On screen, his many credits include My Cousin Vinny, Skidoo, The Front Page, What's Up Doc, The Mirror Has Two Faces, and more. He can currently be seen off-Broadway in The Dark Outside, and the documentary starring Austin Pendleton is available to stream. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.